high-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of January 11th. Coming up on today's show. A long-lost Game Boy PDA. Wanted games that souk. A new book celebrating Acorn Computers. And the Lost Tomb Raider. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, remember PDAs? Not public displays of affection. Oh, I'm talking about <laughs> personal digital assistants. Uh, those little pocket-sized gadgets that were everywhere in the 90s leading into the early 2000s that had a, an address book, a calendar, a calculator, and, and some pretty awful games. Uh, what was your PDA of choice, Neil? The Palm Pilot? The Newton? The Nokia Communicator? <laughs> Never mind, never mind digital assistance, John. Do you remember public displays of affection? Do you remember when they were actually allowed? It's, it's been so long, Neil. Hazily, I remember them. <laughs> uh, the summer of love is coming. <laughs> but yes, PDAs excited me in the 90s. I, I had all, all of the above. Uh, the Palm Pilot. Uh, I can't remember the model of Palm Pilot I had, but it was a monochrome one. It was a pretty basic early one. And um, it did what it did incredibly well. I really loved in particular, the graffiti input method. Have you ever tried this? I have. I have. Yeah. yeah it, it was a really innovative system for it to recognize handwriting. It wasn't quite the same as writing letters on the screen, but it was close enough that you could learn it pretty quickly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I had my little leatherette case that the Palm Pilot was in. And as you opened it out on one side, you had a, a diagram of all the different graffiti letters to remind you. But before long, you actually got that ingrained in your head and you could write pretty quickly with the graffiti input method. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I had a friend uh, who had a Apple Newton. I didn't get to use that much, but it was interesting to see. And I do believe there was an Amstrad device that just beat the Newton to the market by a matter wow. of weeks, because uh, that's often heralded as, the, as one of the first. Um, and then later, I had the fabled Nokia communicator when I was uh, a young IT support technician. It was a huge thing by today's standards. Uh, and it, if you've never seen this before, it's a mobile phone that opened up like a clamshell to turn into what looked like a tiny laptop with a keyboard on it. And of course, when I had that thing, I took every opportunity to take it out in cafes, in airports, <laughs> you know, flash it about. In my mind, everyone was looking at me and thinking, hey, look at that guy with the Nokia communicator. He's going places. He's winning at life. <laughs> of course, nobody cared whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I really did enjoy PDAs. How about you? Were you rocking a PDA in your belt holster, John? You know, I got into the PDA game fairly late, I think. Um, I bought my first one probably in 2001 or 2002. I was in a fraternity in college, and I remember sitting in a meeting one evening, and everybody was taking notes on Palm Pilots, which tells you what kind of fraternity I was in. This was not Animal House, Neil. Um, I, I'd never seen anything like them before. Um, my dad, growing up, he had an Atari portfolio, which was like an early pocket-sized computer, but I never really messed with it because it didn't seem like it could play games. Um, the Palm Pilots seemed like the future. You know, there were little electronic displays that could be used for all kinds of things. I, I went out and I got a Palm Pilot 1000. And by this point, it was ancient. I'm sure I got it for incredibly cheap, probably on eBay. But I used it for years and years, pretty much until I got an iPhone. 
In fact, I remember reading books on that tiny, tiny low-res screen. I read the entirety of Pride and Prejudice on it, Neil. Can you believe it? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this was not the first time that I'd seen a PDA before. Way back in May of 1992, reading through the latest issue of Nintendo Power, I saw a product I desperately wanted but I never saw in stores. It was this thing called the Nintendo Workboy. Uh, the Workboy was essentially a keyboard with small rubber keys about as wide as the Game Boy, um, that as wide as the Game Boy is tall, that hooked up to your Game Boy and turned it into a PDA. Uh, it came with a little kickstand that propped your Game Boy up, and uh, that it transformed the the form factor into like a uh, you know from a, a handheld gaming device into something that kind of resembled a laptop. Um, I've got to be honest with you, Neil. I, I've always wondered what became of the Workboy. Mm -hmm. uh, that two-page spread in, in Nintendo Power has stuck with me for almost 20 years, though apart from that, I've never seen or heard anything about the device. Uh, the Workboy never was released. It never saw the light of day because at the time that it was about to be released, um, the price for the Game Boy was slashed. And so the Workboy was going to end up selling for more than the Game Boy <laughs> itself. And of course, that's that's the kiss of death for any accessory. Um, they uh, they wanted to sell it for 90 bucks and, and the Game Boy was selling for 90 bucks in 1992. So it just didn't make sense. Uh, and so the Workboy just sort of faded away into history until now, Neil, it turns out that there were at least two Workboys manufactured. Uh, one of these is presumed to be deep in the vaults of Nintendo HQ, and the other uh, was in possession of Fabtech. Fabtech was the manufacturer of the Workboy. So video game historian Leon Robertson of the Did You Know Gaming channel on YouTube managed to get in contact with Frank Belouz, I think that's how you say his last name, the founder of Fabtech, and Frank graciously sent his prototype to Liam to see if he could get it working. Uh, after connecting the Workboy to a Game Boy, uh, he fired it up, nothing happened. It needs a cartridge to work, and they didn't have the cartridge. And so all hope was lost until he remembered something that happened last July. Last July, you may remember, Neil, there was a huge info dump slash leak Oh, from yes. Nintendo. This was known as the GigaLeak. Uh, this is where source code from a ton of different systems and games and prototypes all managed to find its way onto the internet. And part of that leak was the ROM for the Workboy cartridge. So Liam burned the ROM onto the blank cartridge and boom, there you have it, a working Workboy. Now, Neil, did you have a chance to check this thing out? What do you think of the Workboy? Would, would it have enticed you as a youth as it did me? Well, first of all, it's such a great story. So well done to the hackers and to Liam and to everyone involved in making this happen. It's great. I did take a look at it on your recommendation. And the device, um, it looks as you'd expect, really. You, you get a menu when you turn it on with options such as your calculator, your phone book. Of course, there's no way in hell that you're going to make phone calls with it. We're, we're <laughs> way before those times. Uh, currency converter and my favorite, a desk clock. And then you've got this tiny keyboard that sits in front of the, the Game Boy. It's not really a productivity tool, which is what PDAs tried to evolve into when things like Microsoft Word were ported to them. But it's, it is a PDA in its purest form. So it keeps your diary for you. It alerts you to appointments. It all seems very basic now, and you would struggle to find a mobile phone that doesn't include such functionality as standard. But 
it was new and, and it would have been very novel in 1992. And I, I would have enjoyed this. Um, I think when you come on to the practicalities, the Game Boy is a chunky unit compared to the, the Slim Palm Pilot. So it would be pretty obvious if you had this thing in your jacket pocket uh, <laughs> in a meeting, in a business meeting. But, you know, I could play some games on the bus coming into work. I could then use this this work boy as a PDA in a dock it probably wouldn't even need a dock because the game boy can stand up due to its own chunkiness in its own right mm-hmm. you could just stand that up on, on your desk that would be fun and even in the modern day i'd love to just have it as a desk clock i love the look of the the analog clock on the game boy screen on one of the screenshots i've seen I, I'd, I'd love that so uh, yes well done to liam for uncovering it and putting together the pieces of the puzzle and i'm very glad that this one's been preserved john yeah, me too, me too. If you have any interest in this, I highly recommend you check out Liam's video on the Did You Know Gaming YouTube channel. Um, he talks about you know the story of the Workboy's demise. He takes you through each of the applications. Uh, like you said, there's, there's the straightforward stuff, the address book, the calculator, but there are some surprises. Uh, the Workboy keyboard unit actually has a temperature sensor in it, so it can take the ambient temperature wherever you are useful. And Neil, you can sort of use this thing to make phone calls. Check this out. So you can use the address book to dial numbers by holding the Game Boy speaker up to the phone receiver so oh. the phone can listen to the dial tones, blue box style. Now, uh, I don't yes. even know. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if phones still work that way anymore. I guess they do. Um, but it's, you know, you can you can do that. So the Game Boy was sort of ahead of the game, maybe behind. I'm not sure where in the game the Game Boy was in terms <laughs> of being able to dial numbers using dial tones. But it's a pretty neat feature. Yeah, and I I love the idea of the temperature sensor to think that a Game Boy might be expanded out as a workman's tool that you might take different measurements and things on because it's a pretty rugged thing. Yeah, it's it's also worth noting that Fabtech planned a successor to the Workboy with the Game Boy Advance, but they ran into the same thing: the high costs of manufacturing the keyboard and all the associated electronics, combined with the fact that handhelds are always getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So by the time that you get a wide enough user base to introduce sort of an esoteric, um, you know, accessory like the Workboy, the price of the handheld is going to be lower than the accessory itself. So unfortunately, it was also never released. But who knows? Maybe third time's the charm and we'll eventually get a Workboy Switch Edition. Neil, I can tell by your expression you're quivering in anticipation. <laughs> oh, I'm quivering, John. It was all the way back in 1987 that Sensible Software released Shoot'em-Up Construction Kit, or Souk as the kids call it. To some, it was a fun distraction, a chance to pretend you were a godlike game developer without the hard work of learning the assembly language skills needed to create a smooth-running arcade shoot-em-up on a home micro of the time. But to others, it really did become a lifelong obsession. First to push the kit to its limits and then to hack the software itself and push it beyond what John Hare and the team at Sensible Software ever imagined would be possible with it. Catering to the obsessed um, grew competitions, pitting souk game creators against each other. And now, open for entries, it's the latest in a long line of prestigious competitions. It's the New Dimension C64 competition. Souk, of course, was released on many platforms, but this competition is aimed aimed at the original Commodore 64 version. So if you feel like flexing your game creation skills, if you're feeling a bit creative, 
um, th this is the place to go and you can win the grand prize, which is a full set of enhancements for your game, including a digital tape master. And get this, they'll do a loading picture of your game by a, a current, they haven't said who, but they just say a current C64 graphic artist, which is mm. kind of cool to get a loading screen, to get all those loose ends tied together to make it really feel like a, a finished product. So you can head over to the New Dimension website using the link in the show notes to find out more. But John, last week I mentioned how much I loved the gold VHS tape that was included my, with my copy of 3D Construction Kit. That was a, another game creation tool that I loved. How about you? Let's talk game creation tools. Have you ever tried your hand at any construction kits, John? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, some early purchases for the Atari computer I grew up with and some of the few uh, legitimately purchased pieces of software that I had were construction kit type programs by Electronic Arts. This was during the time when EA games came in those glorious LP-like sleeves. You could pull a 45 out of one of them. Um, I had Pinball Construction Set, which uh, Steve Wozniak called the greatest program ever written for an 8-bit machine. Pretty mm -hmm. high praise from Woz. Uh, and I also had Music Construction Set, which I admit I hardly ever used because at the time, you know, I was, I was just a kid and I couldn't read music. Uh, the interface was a, a little beyond me, though looking back at it now, it was clearly a precursor to Finale, which is a, a music notation program I use all the time at work. So mm. uh, it was a, it was it's neat to see how that sort of evolved into a program that that I use now in my in my work. Yeah, yeah. Well, a Pinball Construction Set, that's a great choice. That was written by a chap called Bill Budge, who Richard Garriott holds up as one of, if not the greatest Apple II coder of all time. Even to this day, he says that. So imagine getting the seal of approval from Wozniak and Garriott. Yeah, wow. The guy, <laughs> guy's certainly doing something right. But um, yeah, I enjoyed Souk. I enjoyed 3D Construction Kit. These were things that served only really to create a desire to understand and to have more control over the games i was creating because you always tended to hit a wall with these things 3d construction kit actually was a very very deep package with its own built-in programming language Souk, you did hit the wall quite quickly as to what was possible in your imagination you know compared to what you could actually put on the screen still a wonderful product so these things served as a way of i guess fueling my desire to control things more and that then fed into programming languages like Amos or Blitz, the programming languages aimed at games creation, and then beyond that. So it really did spark something in me, these construction kits. And the lines the lines often blur in them. You know, I've mentioned the 3D construction kit has its own programming language within it to trigger events, which wasn't unusual in these kits. Another one I think I enjoyed was called The Quill. Uh, this was a text adventure creator. And I think most of us have had a go at creating text adventures. They they feel like gaming in their purest form and often the go-to thing that, that we attempt when we first try programming is to create a text adventure. A lot harder than you'd think, creating a text adventure parser. So, so the quill really helped to circumvent that and just let you concentrate on your creative writing. And recently I did buy one that I've not yet tried and I've always been interested in. It's, it's by Domark and it's called the Flight Sim Toolkit which is a part game creation tool, part sandbox in which you sculpt your perfect flight simulator. So I'm looking forward to trying that one out, that one I've got for the Amiga. So it is fun to tinker with these things, John. Um, but there's a there's a huge gulf between tinkering and 
creating something really substantial, something that looks like a complete game with these construction kits. Have you ever achieved that greatness with them? I think my most enduring legacy to humanity is probably the rad pinball tables I made in pinball <laughs> construction set. Okay, that's a lie. They were all garbage, Neil. They were all garbage. But, you know, I just remembered I had another EA program called Movie Maker, which purported to give users the ability to animate characters on screen. Uh, I never got far with that either, but I reveled in the sample animations disc it came with, much like you and your gold VHS tape. Mm. I think <laughs> part of the fun with any artistic productivity app back in the day, you might not be able to do anything with it, but it always came with samples that you could either watch or you can mildly alter them. You could change a couple colors here or whatever, giving you the feeling that you were doing something, kind of like changing the text on a crack screen to say your name instead of the original hackers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit like Deluxe Paint 3. Do you remember it came with like the photo identity kit pictures? So you exactly. could choose the head and the eyes and the ears. And, you know, you felt like you were creating something despite having absolutely no artistic skill in my case <laughs> anyway. Uh, another one I've just remembered is the Red Sector Demo Maker for the Amiga. I don't know if you ever tried that. That, mm -hmm. that allowed you to yeah. create your own demos, quite simple demos with you know, spinning shapes and scrolling text, and and you could type out all of your greets to your crew. Oh, you gotta have the greets. Yeah, yeah. you gotta have the greets. You gotta diss the other crews. <laughs> <laughs> so many good memories. But uh, anyway, um, we'd love to hear your stories of your creations with Souk or any other game creation tool. So do drop into our subreddit to share your tales. The link, of course, is in the show notes. Neil is an American fan of British microcomputers. It seems that there is always more to discover. There had to have been something in the water in England during the early 80s that caused an unprecedented leap in technical innovation and a stunning variety of competing platforms to explode out of universities and research laboratories all over the country. We had competing platforms here in the U.S., of course, but the flood of machines combined with the overall quality and quirks and features of them make your side of the pond stand apart. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yes. Once um, Clive Sinclair showed how cheaply a computer could be manufactured for with his ZX8081 and the Spectrum machines, and the popularity of them was evident, yeah, a flood of other manufacturers tried to follow suit. And it did result in a lot of micro corpses on the roadside along the way, because, of course, it just wasn't sustainable to have all of these competing systems that were in no way compatible with one another. But it did make for a very exciting time in the uh, in the history of home computing, for sure. Well, one of those uh, micro corpses, as you call them, <laughs> I've yet to loot, is the line of machines from Acorn. Uh, this, of course, is familiar to you and a host of British school children of a certain age as the makers of the BBC Micro. But of course, Acorn released other computers, including my personal holy grail of computer computing, the Acorn Archimedes. And of course, there was the whole ARM processor thing, but you know nothing really came about that. <laughs> um, so, Neil, I know growing up, you were an Amstrad lad, but surely you have some memories of the Acorn machines. Tell me, were you ever fortunate enough to get your hands on an Archimedes? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And I, it's a bit unfair to describe the BBC Micro as a micro corpse, because that did well, but they Acorn certainly did have them. The Archimedes struggled. The Electron really struggled. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, they had their fair share of them. But back in the day, the Archimedes, it was respected. But because of Acorn's association with schools at this time, yeah, it was, it was kind of nerdy. 
it was the machine that the school teacher's kid on the street had. You know, it, it just wasn't cool. And that's a, such a shame because it, it's a phenomenally good machine from the offset with some great programming tools. It had a wonderful version of BASIC, which allowed you to just write your program in BASIC and then optimize certain parts of it in assembly language there and then. The thing is, on top of it being kind of nerdy, its image was really hammered by the marketing of Intel, who wanted to crush this new ARM processor with its reduced instruction set and its lower power consumption. Who would want anything like that, right? And uh, Intel did everything they could to convince people that their CISC CPUs were the future. And for a couple of decades, it worked. You know, Intel well, we know how history panned out with their 486 CPUs and beyond. They really did hammer the competition. But who's having the last laugh now, John? You know, we, we've got pockets full of arms these days. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a personal memory of mine actually related to the Archimedes ties in nicely with emulation. It was, it was an on, on an Archimedes that I first knowingly saw an example of emulation. This must have been around about 1988. I saw a ZX Spectrum emulator running a game called The Great Escape um, on this machine in a classroom. And it just blew my mind. I just walked in and saw this thing, you know, a machine behaving like another machine. <laughs> How oh, yeah. the hell does this work? To the yeah. point where it's running a game. This this blew my mind. And I can probably pin that down to the very moment my obsession with emulators began. So it's all thanks to the Archimedes. Anyway, anyway, back to this book that you mentioned, John. What, what were we talking about <laughs> Well, Acorn Mania appears to be running wild these days. Uh, there's a brand new coffee table book for sale right now that explores the world of the software that these computers ran. Uh, the book is called Acorn, A World in Pixels, and it celebrates the heroes of the BBC Micro and the Acorn Electron games industry. It's got over 450 pages of screenshots, box art, and interviews with some of the pivotal players at Acorn back in the halcyon days of the 80s. Uh, just to give you a small taste of what's inside, we've got histories from some of the biggest publishers on the platform, such as Superior Software and MicroPower, uh, articles on some Acorn games that were once considered lost but have recently been found, and contributions from huge names like Ian Bell and David Braben of Elite. You've got something from the Oliver Twins and Kevin Toms of Football Manager fame. So the whole package is really a, uh, it's tied together really nicely. Um, Neil, have you had a chance to check this book out? What did you think? That that Kevin Toms, he gets everywhere, doesn't he, with his football he manager? He is, he's everywhere. <laughs> um, have I checked this one out? Not yet. My, my books for this month were Ready Player Two, which I was given for Christmas. So I've just finished devouring that one. And also a lovely Kickstarter I backed has arrived called Demo Maker, The Amiga Years, which is a wonderfully nostalgic coffee table book covering the Amiga demo scene. So I've been occupied with those, but I have seen a lot of people talking about this book on Twitter, a lot of names that I respect saying really good things about this book. So I get a feeling, the feeling it's a good one and I need to get hold of it. But um, tell me about it, John, sell it to me. Well, for me, this book ticks a lot of the right boxes. First of all, it's massive. It's 450 pages. So you're going to get your money's worth from a content perspective. Uh, I love the cover art. It's original pixel art. And it's really evocative of, you know, the, the, the acorn scene. It comes in a slipcase, Neil. You have no idea how much I adore a good slipcase. <laughs> and uh, the binding seems to be sound. There's a sewn-in bookmark. So whenever you're buying a book, 
you know, you're buying more than just the content. You get content for days for free on the internet. That the whole package, the way that that it's put together, means just as much as the content. Um, and at thirty pounds, the price is right too. Uh, it's not too expensive. So I wouldn't be surprised if a copy were to wing its way to West Virginia before Ooh, yeah, too long. Yeah. You know, the, these books, these coffee table books, uh, which are just absolutely flooded with screenshots and box art and things like that. I'm starting to think it might be the ultimate lazy way to enjoy nostalgic gaming, you know, (laughs) because you can just open these books and they're so beautifully printed that you just, you see a screenshot, you get drawn in, all of those memories come flooding back. You just you just linger on that page for a bit. That's right, and none of the sort of you don't you, you don't have to deal with the loading times. And and if the if the if the actual game itself, if the gameplay isn't quite as you remember it, you don't have to deal with that disappointment. Because <laughs> let's be honest, it's the look of the game that brings you back. You know, it's yeah. the look and to a lesser degree the sound of the game. But you know, just looking at that screenshot can sort of give you that that nostalgia hit that you might need after a hard day at work. Yeah. So books. The ultimate games. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are an Acorn fan from back in the day, or if you're a newcomer to the scene like me, and you want to see what all the fuss was about, you can purchase Acorn, a world in pixels from iDesign. I think that's how you pronounce it. Dot com. Just click the link in the show notes. Video games have never shied away from borrowing ideas, being inspired by others and, well, just outright plagiarism. And when it comes to the original Tomb Raider game, it, when it was released, it was pretty clear where the inspiration came from, really. It was it was that man with the hat and the whip, of course, Indiana Jones, which is why I read this week's story from PC Gamer with a, a wry smile. It turns out that in 2006, Core Design were creating a remake of the original Tomb Raider for the Sony PSP. This was for the 10th anniversary of the original which means that was in 2006. That means that Tomb Raider is 25 years old this year, John. Holy cow. <laughs> Let Holy that sink cow. in for a moment. Anyway, um, development of this game, it didn't go to plan and it was cancelled with Core switching to an offering from another company, Crystal Dynamics, for the anniversary edition. So that was eventually released in 2007 using this different engine. However... That first attempt at the anniversary edition was almost finished, according to the studio manager, Gavin Rumry, and it went on to be reskinned as an Indiana Jones game. So the circle was complete. A, a Tomb Raider game became an Indiana Jones game, or at least nearly, because that game too was not released and Core Design would shut it down. Uh, well, not the game. Actually, the whole of Core Design was shut down in 2010. That was the end of them. And now something has surfaced over on the website tomb-of-ash.com. Over there, they've uploaded the game, which they've rediscovered to archive.org. And then on their website, they've got all of the instructions that you need to get it up and running. Not only that, they've started issuing patches to fix crashes and to continue the development of the game, which I think is really cool. I mean, the instructions are very clear. It's it's not the easiest thing. You need Visual Studio installed and you need to jump through a few hoops to get it compiled. But most of us should be able to follow that and get it up and running. This was all done without the express permission of Core Design, unsurprisingly. The, the website author tried to reach out to them but got no response. So they went ahead and put it um, on archive.org anyway. I guess that covers their backsides if it's not on their own website. So everything right. you need if you want to try it out is right there on the website. But uh, let's just go back to Tomb Raider, John. Were you a fan back in the day? No, not at all. Uh, Tomb Raider came out during a time when I had nothing to do with the PlayStation at all. In 1996, 
I was firmly in the grasp of Nintendo and the N64, and I can't say that I've ever gone back to it either. Uh, Third-person puzzle platformer has never been a genre I've enjoyed. Uh, I don't really like the 3D Zelda games either. It's just, it just seems like adding the third dimension in a somewhat clumsy way makes solving puzzles and shooting at stuff needlessly frustrating. Um, I do think that the evolution of Lara Croft over the years has been interesting. Uh, it's kind of a reflection on how game developers view women in games in general. You know, in the first couple titles, Laura's somewhat unrealistic proportions are the star of the show, while she becomes a much more nuanced and less overtly sexy lead in the later editions of the franchise. Yeah, certainly the most recent release is much, much grittier. Um, and I, I actually enjoyed the latest Tomb Raider game. I, I did play through that. I didn't complete it, but I played it through. Uh, quite a lot but it's funny that your first instinct here when i say tomb raider is the playstation uh, and i imagine that will be the instinct of a lot of people because it's a game that came out just at that moment in the early days of the system showed off what it could do it, it was on the sega saturn as well where, where it showed off what that could do but for me if you say tomb raider my reaction is the 3d effects because it's one of mm. the very first games i played that i could pl- apply a 3d effects patch to on my pc and see not just a small improvement, but an absolutely mind-blowing improvement to a game. You know, the image quality, the frame rate, everything was pulled up thanks to this new world of hardware 3D acceleration. So that's what I think of when I uh, think about Tomb Raider. But um, what about this eventually being reskinned as an unreleased Indiana Jones game? Does does that version, would that entice you more if it was an indie game? <sighs> You know, I like the Indiana Jones franchise, the movie franchise. I even like Crystal Skull. I didn't think it was quite the train wreck that everybody seemed to think. But the indie video game franchise has a more spotty track record, I'd say. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, For all of the gold titles, like all of the point-and-click games from Lucasfilm, there's tons and tons of half-hearted or, let's be honest, (laughs) no-hearted side-scrollers. And the fact that the programmers of this game just reskinned some assets and popped Indian there doesn't exactly fill me with confidence or set my world on fire. Yeah, and and that's no new thing. Going back to uh, the original point-and-click indie game, you had the action game and you had the point-and-click adventure game that came out side-by-side. And you just avoided that action game, didn't you? (laughs) That was like the play point and click where it was where it's at and for me it was indiana jones and the fate of atlantis that is that is peak indie for me um although i do get quite nostalgic when i play that atari arcade cabinet version of of indiana jones and the temple of doom with those digitized voices and the minecart level that's a machine that i'd love to have someday but um i do think that with indie's track record in general that a slower paced game suits the indie franchise better than an all-out action game and I do hope the right balance is found again someday for a, for a killer indie. And, and certainly with uh, talk of Harrison Ford coming back for another indie, as old as he is, he must be close to 80 now, certainly in his 70s. Uh, you know, I, I don't think a fast-paced game is going to suit him. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I do hope we see another killer indie game at some point. Well, I tell you, Neil, this is breaking news, not retro news, but uh, just uh, one day ago at CES, Bethesda has announced they are making a new Indiana Jones game. So you never know, your dreams may be realized. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't caught that news yet. So I'll watch that one closely and um, see if it's something special or if it's just another reskin Tomb Raider. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) But in the meantime, if you want to see what this new discovery is all about and if the uh, 
digital archaeologist in you wants to find out more uh, and see if they patch it to completion. It would certainly be interesting to see uh, how long their interest stays with this project and, and what they do with it. Check out the links. I, I think this is becoming a catchphrase now, John. Check out the link in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favourite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.